As briefly as I've known him, Strother Purdy evades all simple characterizations. Perhaps put most simply, he's the founder of a company called Beloved Old Tree. He's the author of multiple books on woodworking, including one on the works which he outlines at the end of our conversation. He maintains a very interesting blog named, excuse me, Mundoggin's Miscellany. And in addition to all this, he's written a science fiction novel called That Precious Ghost in Glass, all of which can be accessed in the links below. Although, of course, that introduction wouldn't come close to encapsulating all that we attempted to cover here in our conversation. He also happens to be my friend's dad, and she insisted that we meet. I understand now why she would do that, uh, and I'm so glad that she did. For the sake of context, the audio opens with a reference to OnlyFans. Uh, what you can't see in the audio is that Struther starts the phone call in a robe. Uh, he makes a joke about OnlyFans, and that's where our conversation starts. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Uh, and without further introduction, we give you Mr. Strother Purdy. There it is. Uh, I should have my own um, OnlyFans channel, but there'd be like one. <laughs> though. Here. <clears throat> Try to be a little more respectable, I suppose. Oh no, dude. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not too worried about that at all. Okay. <laughs> there. <laughs> How are you? Good to meet you. Good to see you. Good to meet you too. <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for accepting this strange proposition. Sure, my pleasure. Um, How can I, I, I don't. I don't, yeah, I guess I don't know where to start. Part of me wants to start with a, with a, um, a consideration of OnlyFans. I don't know if it's better to do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, OnlyFans no. is a strange phenomenon because um, you can tell me if you don't want to start here, but I have a friend who um, I haven't checked in with him in the last three months, but he, so, so you know, that should demonstrate how good of a friend I am um he at some point was like really convinced that he was polyamorous and and maybe even the framing of that he told me he was polyamorous and i believed him but of course that always comes with like a or at least if, if you're me it that comes with like this massive you know like constellation of considerations where i'm like so so like what exactly does that mean how do we define that and <clears throat> You know, to his credit, he was really articulate in trying to explain exactly how he defines that. And I think either at the same time as that, or through talking to him, he, he turned me on to this person named Esther Perel. Have you heard of this lady? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Rings a bell. I can't bring up uh, what she's done or written. Yeah, she's like a couples therapist, but she has these, she probably has a TED Talk. Um, she has a podcast. She's been on a bunch of podcasts. Um, my sense of it is she has like, she has this great, like wealth of knowledge as a couples therapist, but then also seems to have like a propensity to psychoanalyze the, the hosts of all these yep. podcasts, which I think they like kind of love. <laughs> sure. Sure. And, um, she was sort of I, around the topic of polyamory, maybe 
you know, her whole thing is like, it's really up to the couple to decide like what is, what's defined as fidelity and what's not. And I think that the only thing, the only fans thing for me is really interesting where when people talk about being monogamous, the idea of cheating for them would be like outsourcing. You know, this is probably my words and not theirs, (laughs) but outsourcing something to, you know, outside of the, outside of the couple. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So then it's like, okay, the obvious one is like, if you, you know, for many monogamous relationships, if you go and hook up with somebody else, you've outsourced something, you know, to outside the, the relationship, and that's a transgression. Yeah. And then the interesting thing is like, okay, well then, where do you sort of put pornography, right? And it, and it's suddenly, I think you get this spectrum of interpretation across couples. Um, this is probably you didn't expect this interview to start with a with a fifteen. No, minute not at all. It's just fun diatribe uh and then and then i think what's interesting there is if you continue to like run that down it's like all right are you outsourcing something sure you talk to some of your friends and they're like hey it doesn't bother me or it doesn't bother us or you know apparently it doesn't bother us um and then it's like okay well what about or if it does bother them it's like all right cool then maybe porn's off limits for this couple what about just masturbation right and it's like (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, you know, again, you have this like spectrum and then it's like, okay, well, if people are okay with it, it's like, all right, well then what is okay for that person to be thinking about while they masturbate, right? (laughs) Uh, uh, You kids all think this stuff through way too much. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think the OnlyFans thing is really interesting to me if I could finally land this plane because it because it throws this wrench where when people are like oh oh i'm cool with porn right or i'm okay with people you know like watching porn that i'm with right right and it's like okay like what about OnlyFans? and suddenly they get like really squirrely they're like well the idea that it could be somebody like down the street right or that it is a real person right and it's like yeah but the other person is still a real person what are you talking about (laughs) right um i i think that maybe to your point or maybe not to your point um my sense of it is like when i ask these questions not everybody is like really you know like it's kind of overwhelming to think that much about it which is which it makes it really interesting to me like what people default into yeah, uh, yeah. and you'll get in relationships all the time this like vague sense that they hope that they're, they're in alignment that they maybe never really they've never really checked until it comes up right yep <laughs> sometimes 20 years into a marriage yeah Uh, yeah. well you brought up like 600 topics um which one do you really dive into it's up to you um yeah Yeah, the the thing that that strikes me is i i am at, at age 55 i am amazed at how fast society is evolving how quickly people are are deciding to open up issues that were always just simply private or closed or uncertain or you know we don't get this like what is my gender um, and uh, it's it's cool it's interesting but it's certainly not settled and that the whole poly thing is is absolutely there um, nobody knows where this is going but everybody knows that. Well, not everybody, but lots and lots of people know that the monogamy thing isn't working for them, um, at least as far as they've decided to look into it and to define it for themselves. Um, the, the Disney concept, if you start there, you know, that being the, 
uh, boy meets girl, boy proposes to girl, boy is faithful to girl forevermore. They have two kids and they live happily ever after. And that happily ever after is like, wait, well, wait a minute, what does that look like? And this is where I, I, I joke that you kids think way too much. You're, you're trying to define, you know, what is it? Should it be? Um, and then be it. Whereas I think um, the, the lovely uh, gift of, of history has been so much of this has been private. Nobody knew what the sex life was of a medieval peasant. We have some guesses. Um, what was going on in their heads? Uh, were they happily married? It's not really recorded. And that there's, there's tremendous freedom in that. And I highly doubt they were trying to pursue an ideal in their sex lives. Yes, the Christian church in, in, in medieval Europe told them that you absolutely, this was all wrong. And after you do it, you have to confess. Oh, and you've done it, you did it again? Oh, go and confess, and then you're fine. And you're good after confession. And this, it, there's, the, there's a freedom and an openness just to, to, you know, get it wrong and keep getting it wrong and it'll be okay. Um, whereas today there's, you know, you ran through um, what I think bedevils so many young couples is this, well, are we doing it right? You know, do we dial this in? Do we have to, um, we really need to talk about these things, but of course we can't talk about them because we don't understand them in any way. It's scary. Well, so we'll, 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 we'll guess that it's all right. Or if we do talk about it, we get all worried that we, now we need another whole section of experience that has to be defined and relegated, much like deciding that we have to have so many different genders. Sorry, we've got the lawn people going on next. Um, and it, it, it worries me that, that there's a tremendous loss of freedom in that. Um, I have no problem if anybody wants to describe themselves as, as uh, having this gender or that gender or whatever else gender. Um, I'll be friends, uh, sure. Uh, if I get your pronouns wrong, please, I'm trying my best. I, I don't mean to insult you, but uh, if, if, we, if we have to create a grid that's forever evolving and changing and we have to be within it, then I think we're losing something massive. Um, I've had my own, uh, shall we say, adventures with these, uh, um, with these matters uh, coming out of a strictly monogamous marriage for 20 years and uh, realizing uh, that I was poly and I've always been poly. Now I'm in a strictly monogamous marriage again and I am still very much poly, but I absolutely respect those, the boundaries of the relationship that I'm in. And I'm enormously happy in it. Um, it's my theory that pretty much everybody is poly. Uh, you can love more than one child, if you can love more than one parent, if you can be best friends with maybe two people, uh, I think being best friends with more than more than that's really difficult. Uh, you're capable of loving more than one person. And I don't see why categorically sexuality has to be eliminated from that. Um, I do very much understand the power of jealousy uh, and the power of not having enough time to be um, with uh, uh, more than one person in a in a very uh, in a in a truly connected manner, and that's where poly fall. That's where poly falls down. Uh, people are jealous, very jealous. Uh, we're possessive. Um, 
and uh, those emotions don't go away easily. Uh, they're not, um, you know, uh, Shakespeare called it the green-eyed monster. And uh, that is, it's an enormously powerful and destructive emotion. Uh, but to say, no, we're just not going to be jealous. We can have sex with whomever we want to, whenever we want to, as long as we communicate about it, uh, which is sort of the poly concept throws another, you know, it's, that's, it's isolating our sexuality outside of who we are, the rest of who we are as people in every other, um, in every other way. So poly is very difficult. I tried poly for about two years. I find it, I found it more difficult than figuring out a modern stereo. Um, the instruction manual was translated from three different languages and uh, I came away saying, this is exhausting. I can't possibly do this. And, um, you know, to that point of outsourcing, I think we ask uh, way too much of our relationships in so many ways. Uh, you can, you know, I think a lot of the appeal for Polly and, and the, I was in a support group and people who came to the support group pretty much had a, a, the majority of them had exhausted their monogamous sexual uh, experiences and we're just looking for some way to spice it the hell up um, and that's the wrong motivation to be in a in a committed relationship with more than one person uh, frankly go look at some porn <laughs> that, that'll spice up your your uh, your sexual life it'll certainly lead to arguments um, but uh, uh, I've lost my track of thought I had a sip of coffee there anyway I'll land there. <clears throat> I guess I have two major points of consideration. The first one would be at the very beginning of that, you were sort of exploring this idea that there was a tremendous amount of freedom and privacy. Um, yes. And I, I, I couldn't get the sense when you were saying it, and the answer might be both, that <clears throat> whether that freedom was in hindsight and interpretation, sort of like a from a societal perspective, like, um, I, I, don't, I guess I don't even know how to define that without going to the next one, which would be, or, or freedom on the individual level, where because it's private, you have more freedom. And of course, the counter argument to that would be uh, sort of this almost like the Sam Harris free will thing, where it's like, if you have fewer options, you might be less free. Um, so, so while we might look back and be like, oh, there was such a freedom yeah. of being private. It's like they, that, you know, that peasant in whatever village you were describing might have been like yearn for some options and, so, you know, well, or some like different uh, models or something. If you're discovered, you're, you're free to be a witch as long as you keep it private. But when you're discovered, you're, you get burned. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I absolutely I will play devil's advocate on, on a ton of, of issues because it's enjoyable to think them through. Sure. And uh, uh, are there downsides to privacy? Absolutely. Um, and uh, I'd say the, the biggest victories in turning something that had to be private into something that's public and it's been for the better is homosexuality. I grew up with two gay uncles. Um, well, a gay uncle and his partner, uh, and uh, they simply lived together, and it was hush hush, quiet quiet, and they were wonderful. We always spent um, the day after Christmas with them, 
they had an indoor swimming pool, which I found fascinating. Uh, and it had curtains around it. And I always wondered why on earth do they have a private swimming pool? This was such the coolest thing in the world. And of course they lived in, in frankly in terror of their neighbors. Mm. Uh, and now um, they've, they've, they've both passed on. So I, I don't get to talk to them about it, but I have uh, a gay sister-in-law and a gay brother-in-law. Uh, my daughter has uh, a gay friend um, and uh, the conversations I've had with them are, yes, they're so much happier. I would say that this is, this is public. This is perfectly fine. You can, you can express yourself in these regards without, uh, without condemnation, depending on what you are. And the United States is a very complicated place. We are one of the most socially conservative countries in the world. Um, we are as conservative as Turkey and as conservative as India. We're nowhere near socially as liberal as Western Europe, um, but parts of us are. And that, that, uh, that mix has is, is got an amazing um, uh, power to it. Uh, not so much power as uh, tension, I guess is a better term. Um, do I recommend people who don't fit in to stay private? No, uh, of course not. And I, I have not, I have come out as poly to my family, which was, um, shall we say, uh, deeply difficult. And uh, uh, it wasn't, you know, there's no right time or anything along those lines. Uh, I would rather be out about it than in. Uh, but within, there are many things, I'll bet, that you will never tell anybody. There are many things that I will never tell anybody. Uh, we have those private secrets and there's freedom in not telling them some of the most embarrassing or terrible things we've ever done, individual acts. So it's, it's, I think it's easy to say we should be out and, and, and everything. There should be no lies. Um, we should not have to live a, a life of lies. Uh, but then that precludes um, being able to be who we want to, so to speak, in this world. Um, if we're defined by our worst moments, um, we are all <laughs> condemned to, to being, you know, just, ah! Uh, but if we can forget them, if we can keep them private, uh, then I think we have, uh, we have freedom. We have greater freedom. So it, it, we're in an age where uh, so much of, of intellectual liberal America wants us to be free in every possible way. But I think, uh, and that's a, a wonderful discussion. It's a fantastic discussion that we should have. Uh, at the same time, there's, there's uh, the, the privacy uh, question uh, should still be there. And I think we all, we all respect that. And um, the more that it's, that it's turned into a, 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 you're an idiot for thinking this and you're an idiot for that, uh, the, the lesser we are, uh, the more if we can explore things. Because in no conversation can any of us touch on every aspect of every issue uh, and satisfy it. We can only you know, follow a single train of thought for a, for a minute or two and look through it. Hmm. <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to be able to watch my girlfriend's face as I start this sentence. One oh, of my, one of my uh, <laughs> reservations with the the idea, thank you, with the idea of polyamory as a, yeah, see, there goes her face. 
I'm picking my talk, so. Sorry? Well, I'm picking my teeth while I talk, so yeah. there you go. <laughs> one, one, one of my reservations with polyamory is an identity marker. Uh, mm. I'm going to pause as I cough and everybody worries how um, how conservative I am while that sentence hangs in the air. Um, one, one of my reservations with that. Sorry, can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm, I'm mulling around the concept of identity with Polly. Sure, sure. Yeah, so one of my reservations with that <laughs> is I was talking to my, this is, you know, just through my experience, obviously, it's, I, I haven't done much research on this. Um, let's call him Adam. I was talking to Adam and, and, um, and he was, he, you know, it's really hard. Like, he, he, I'm sure you know, unless you're some sort of uh, ubermensch that coming out to your uh, like sort of family rather uh, as being poly probably was, ha had an enormous sense of weight to it. Um, and that might've been liberating, but it might've also sort of like caused a lot of friction or confusion. Um, and there might've been moments where you're not sure if you're causing more clarity or less clarity, right? Um, and, and of course I was sort of witnessing some of this nobody uh, knows Polly is so right <laughs> thank you of course so, confusion right so so i think you know there's some words that have, that have the benefit of history that at least give us um some sort of loose brackets where if i <laughs> if i came out to my family as being catholic um everybody could soberly theoretically everybody could soberly say they nod and say okay and in their minds in parentheses it's like you know he is what i think that is <laughs> well roman catholic uh open and, and, uh orthodox what, what are we talking about here no exactly right so, so 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 the the next question would be like well okay great like you're that what does that even mean right right nancy pelosi catholic uh yeah. what are we talking <laughs> yeah, exactly and one of my problems with the the idea of a word like polyamory is you said it earlier like it almost philosophically could be argued that we are all polyamorous according to one definition uh yeah. and maybe actually according to many definitions of that word so yeah. so then what does it do for us when we when we if we come out as that right and when i was talking to my buddy adam um and he was kind of like working through these things and he was like you know going through this thing and he's like well maybe we're monogamish and maybe, you know, she moved here for me and maybe, maybe, maybe she's not, she wants to, you know, she doesn't want to be polyamorous right now in action. So maybe we're, maybe, maybe she's not polyamorous. Right. And I, you know, uh, again, this will demonstrate how good or bad of a friend I am. But I, I, at one point I was like, dude, I think you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself to use words really well. Um, yep. I don't even, I, I was, I think I went so far as to say, I don't think you're polyamorous in the same way. And I'm, again, I'm not, this is going to make me sound much more religious than I am, but I was like, I don't think God sees you as polyamorous the same way. God probably doesn't also see you as being Adam. Like you're, it doesn't see like the universe doesn't see the Atlantic ocean or the Pacific ocean. Like we, we just put those words on those things. So like, yeah. why do you have to, at this moment on a Friday night, she's not here <laughs> you're not gonna kiss me suddenly like why do you need to i don't think why do you need to decide in this moment 
if you're monogamous, monogamish, I'm going to just mess those two words up, polyamorous, what, why do you need to decide yeah. that right now? And, and part of me was like, why don't you just, why don't you just describe what you do? <laughs> and if one day you're hanging out with this person and the next day you're hanging out with that person and the other person's okay with that, you know, it might even be better to just tell your family that as opposed to letting them trip over what kind of Catholic you might be. And maybe they have a really good sense of what a Catholic is, but they're still wrong, right? Yeah. At least in description of what you do. And maybe they have like a, a monstrous version of that in their mind. And they're like, oh my God, my son's gone over, you know, to right. the dark side or whatever. Right, right. But that, that's my reservation with those words is, is a, you know, is, is strictly like a definition issue in relation to our identity. Yeah, yeah. No, that that's a, um, I think that's a, a particularly, um, uh, a particularly American way of looking things. So what you do is what you are. Um, mm. In conversations, uh, it, the, it, when you meet people at cocktail parties, the, the first question often, at least in my age group, will be, well, what, what do you do? You'll say, I am a lawyer, or I am a, a, a this or that. Uh, and we do, I think you're, you're quite perceptive to, to get tripped up with what we do as, as who we are. Um, that you have to have a definition. And if you, um, you know, there, there's that old, and again, it's generational. I don't think you guys have it too, but there, there's the old, gen, that there, there are, um, women can have three genders, but men can only have two. Uh, women can be gay, bisexual, or straight, whereas men can only be gay or straight. Because if you have gay sex once in your life, <laughs> you well if a man it's not gay sex but if you have sex with another man once in your life then you're gay you just are there's this this sort of line of of identity that yeah. we don't this really male think rubicon <laughs> is is fluid whereas you know, if, if get back to my medieval peasant who knows what they did in, in the in the bed of where it was like 15 people could sleep in the thing um and uh, they did on a regular basis it was a place where where travelers went um, you know, whole families would sleep in, in, in beds uh, up through the, the children's teenage years in single places. Uh, what went on in the medieval bedroom, we don't really know. Nobody really talked about it. Nobody really kept. But we have a feeling things went on that uh, weren't talked about. Um, so it, does it make you this or does it make you that? Or do you need to tell yourself that you are this or that you are that? Um, I... I'm happy to say that, yes, it, because America works this way, people ask, well, are you poly? I say, well, yes, I am poly. And I think that's, it's the way in which we simply work with our identity politics that I, I would like there to be less of a stigma around, at least in my mind, people who very consciously are capable of and want to uh, live for three, three or four people in a, in a room or in a house um, I forget the guy's name, but the original writer of the Wonder Woman series, Marston. Uh, I think he was a Harvard professor, and he was in a, uh, a polyamorous relationship back in the 1930s. Uh, highly shh, quiet, quiet, but he had a wife and a girlfriend. The three of them lived together. And um, I think in his case, I think it was possible, at least from what I've read about it, for him to have deeply emotional true connections with more than one person uh, it enormously helps that they all live together 
because uh, once you it, it in the poly dating scene, it's enormously com complicated if it's Tuesday with this person and Wednesday with that person. And then a new movie comes out and which of your partners do you go to with it and the jealousies get created. But if you're all living together, you all just do everything together and, and things are, are fine that way. Um, that that's so that social acceptance that of that allowance you know back to that private public issue the you know to make it okay that the, oh my god there's a poly couple or triple or whatever it is living next <laughs> is it has just as much lack of oomph as the couple downstairs gay you know who cares um and uh in the, as far as the poly world goes that that isn't quite there yet and unless you live in a, in a big city, and I don't think really anybody cares in a big city. Hmm. And I've lost my train of thought, which is good. It gives you a breather. <laughs> Sorry, I am uh, two plus weeks out of out of COVID, and and it is oh wow, it is lingering. Uh, you might be able to hear it in the front of my face. It is lingering more than I would thought would have thought, and. Uh, it the degree to which it's lingering is surprising me considering how quickly everything came on and then so many things left like one-on-one -on -one fever for like 48 hours oh wow. an hour 72 i was like oh this is blessed like i'm gonna be fine by wednesday <laughs> and then like well, two wednesdays later <laughs> your I, hey you sound perfectly normal to me oh yeah like <laughs> Three days ago, my family thought I sounded like a lifelong smoker or like I just drink gravel <laughs> or something. Uh, so, well, good past it. Hope it doesn't linger yeah, much. I keep catching all. these little popcorn coughs. So, excuse me. It's um, a natural, nasty little disease. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Hmm. More on that maybe in a second. Uh, sure. Okay. Polyamory. Where was I? <laughs> uh, this this idea. Sometimes I find myself. I have taught for eight or nine, eight years maybe, and mm. um, and for many years, like you know, people who I was close close with would tease me, like if somebody you know I wasn't at a cocktail party, uh, wouldn't have been invited. But if I was somewhere else, you know, and somebody asked me what I did. I would have a really hard time being like, I just felt awkward. I felt like an imposter, you know, and it took me like a while to feel comfortable just saying like, oh yeah, I'm a teacher. But, you know, at some point somebody would say like, I don't even think Kevin would call himself a teacher, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, it might be a reflection of his own neuroses, but uh, it, it definitely is, at least in my experience, a little bit of just, okay, this is, this is sort of the game we play. I, I say I'm a teacher. It makes everybody feel better, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever. I wouldn't describe all the other things I do. I certainly spend a lot of time teaching, so it seems convenient. And the other thing is, yeah. I uh, I certainly do it at a place. Whoop, you broke up there. Convenience where it's like, all right, I know what they want through uh, with my but I, I guess I've just grown up. You're back. Did I lose you there for a second? Yes, you did. I'm, I'm essentially trying to make the point, not very well, that 
while I had to like, I kind of noticed that I was adapting to the convenience of just saying like, I am a blank. Um, I'm sure the same thing probably exists if I was cognizant enough of, with our names where it's like, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I'm, I, I know it'll be really helpful if I just say that I'm Kevin. Um, yep. And of course, like at no point when I was six was like, am I Kevin, right? Like, <laughs> uh, not to sound like a bad mystic or something, but I think if I start there with that name thing, they're like, all right, this is just, it's just like a marker. Um, I think if I go up there, you know, I think that kind of scales for me when I do think about these, um, like you said, these ever expanding categories of words that on the one hand might be liberating to people because they're like, oh yeah, like I didn't even, I thought I was, you know, strange or um, right. aberrant in some way. And yet now there's a whole category. And, yeah. And of course, when I'm in that community now, I see all the nuance and there's these kinds of Catholics and those kinds of Catholics, but yeah. maybe there's something really inviting at first. I, I find that that name thing scales up for me when I look at those things. And I, there is sort of like a, there is sort of a trap um, sometimes where, you know, like if somebody, you could imagine if somebody, I'd have to imagine a more corporate environment, but if somebody gets named the boss, if they think they are the boss, right, that, that yeah. could be kind of dangerous, right? <laughs> where if they go in and they're like, okay, like I'm playing at being the boss and like <laughs> I have a certain role to play and I'll, I'll try to play it well. Uh, that person feels a lot safer for me than the person who's like, I need to be the boss. I am the boss, right? And there's certain, oh no, I think I lost you again. Yeah, no, no, I'm here. Okay, cool. I think there's certain traps there. Like, oh, I, I, as soon as I say I am this thing, I then have to be this thing. And suddenly you're, you're being things that maybe you wouldn't have been if that word sure. wasn't there. Yeah, with every de de definition uh, that may clarify, it also limits and, and shapes mm -hmm. off the way in which you don't fit that, that role. Um, yeah, That's and a much and, more concise way of saying that. <laughs> you're, you're a boss. <laughs> yeah, the, the whole boss thing is a whole other. Uh, um, right, if you're uh, uh, see what uh, I'm curious, what do you teach? I teach English, but I've I've had see this is this is my problem emerging here. I've had different roles as, as sort of reading specialist, but I most of my job was sort of as just like a literature teacher. And then I've moved into an administrative role um, sort of with that reading specialist background as a academic support coordinator or sort of like a special yeah. education coordinator in a, in a private Catholic school. Um, but I still get to teach my one section of world literature. So I've, oh, I've always held on to that. Yeah. Yeah. Are you teaching for world literature, more modern stuff uh, or um, do I, I know any? <laughs> I think you would know I think you would know all of them um I start with I start with the question who's in charge or who's in control and I found that thematically I, I like that thread as opposed to maybe going chronologically or trying to teach world literature by region or something like that uh huh. I think sometimes that sort of like overarching question for the year can be a little corny. Um, yeah. And I kind of resisted it, I thought healthily, but then I was, I sort of have, it, it really fit with the group of kids that I, I seem to inherit. I teach junior year English. So a lot of kids, uh, that's the year the kids would go to AP and there's a lot of, there's a couple AP English options. 
Yeah. So yeah. I, I get the kids who don't go AP um, for, for, yeah, yeah. for a wide variety of reasons. And so, some of them are so smart. They, they know that the, our APs aren't weighted. So then they kind of load their, their, their <laughs> GPA. Um, and other kids, you know, just never really consider going to AP. And I yep. found that, that that thematic arch um, arc rather has been really helpful. So I start with like um, so, Plato's which, allegory of the cave. Sorry. Oh yeah, the allegory of the cave. Sure, sure. Yeah, I start with Plato, um, and of course that like who's in charge thing emerges immediately. So, or maybe I'll start even before that with like a poem I love. Um, it kind of changes every year. This this past year I did Prayer Before Birth by a guy named Lewis McNeese. Um, I know Lewis McNeese quite well. Oh, cool. Do you know Prayer Before Birth? Um, it's been 30 years since I read oh, cool. much of it. But uh, yeah, I, um, I know Lewis McNeese as well. I wrote a, an essay about his poem, Circe. Oh, nice. I don't he know. Had, I'm not familiar with Circe. It's a tiny little poem, but he had, um, uh, not to digress from your story, but he had marital troubles early on and described, hmm. the, described his... Uh, his marriage to a perfectly wonderful woman as um, uh, being bewitched by Circe uh, <laughs> from, uh, from uh, the Odyssey. Of course. I just did a deep dive on James Joyce's Ulysses, so maybe we'll, we'll, have, to, we'll have to revisit the whole Odyssey thing. Oh, <laughs> It was great. It was, it was eight months. I'll never get back, but I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and you'll forever... Uh, uh, You'll forever um, uh, want to wander around Dublin on a on a day. Uh, something tells me I'm more of a West of Ireland kind of person, but yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure I would love to go to. I'm sure I'd love to go to Dublin. Green grasses, um, such. He was what? The green grasses and uh, and uh, uh, rain and cows and butter of yeah, the West. Yeah, sounds great. <laughs> There's a. I studied abroad in Leeds. We'll never get. We'll never get back to where we were. I, I studied abroad in Leeds. I'm remembering. I've got the point. This is okay. a big circle. <laughs> I studied abroad in Leeds, and I had um, this one professor who is a published poet, and he had all these other poets come. And there was this. There was this guy. He. I can almost remember lines from it, um, just from this one reading he did. And I've had trouble finding it since. I've probably looked back at the poem one or two times since, but. He, I believe the poem is called East and he's an Irish poet and the, he, you know, I don't know what town on the East he's from, but it's a whole mm. poem about sort of resisting that romantic Irish tradition of the West. And he's sort of like, give me the East any day. And he kind of describes like the Greyhound bus stops and like the, you know, <laughs> the lampposts in the, in the fog. And it, it was really cool. Um, oh. and I remember it stuck with me because I never really considered <laughs> that not rivalry, but that tension or even, you know, like that archetype of like resisting a tradition or not yeah. yelling with the tradition is obviously uh, so fundamental. So, you know, it kind of just like put a little folk layer on top of that. It was cool. Go to the, <clears throat> to the Isle of the Lake of Innisfree or how does that go? You know better than me. I'm, I'm not. A, I'm not a great English teacher, which is why I try not to own it a lot. <laughs> well, that's that's Yeats and the what I would think of as um, that tradition of uh, of uh, sort of green green bower, lovely butterflies, beautiful nature, uh, 
and uh, sonorous, beautiful poetry lines. And I shall rise. Ah, ah, damn it, I used to have it in my head. Anyway. Yeah, although, of course, we might be encouraged that Yeats obviously had quite a dark side and wasn't all rainbows and butterflies. Yes, yes. Oh, very much so. The, the center shall not hold. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, Though a, a great understanding of humanity, um, there's a, a poem called Politics that I think really, really um, uh, applies. It applied to 1939 when he wrote it, but it applies so much to, to today and the issues we're talking about are our, our necessity to find the right terms to define our identity. Um, the, the, uh, the deep need, the offense when, when we don't have our, 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 our sense of identity and the, the, uh, uh, has, has not been um, uh, you know, acknowledged and respected by those around us. Uh, and it, it's, it's a simple, uh, a very cis-hetero uh, poem uh, where he essentially says, how can I think about politics? And he's talking about Nazis at this time. He's talking about real threats to the world. Uh, how can I think about uh, Spanish and German politics when there's that girl standing there and oh, how I wish I was young again. <laughs> and there to me, that's the, the human experience. Yes, the politics are important, yes. The, um, uh, these issues are important about how we treat each other in the world. And yes, we should be treating each other with much more kindness. There's, there's nothing wrong with kindness. If anybody asks me for kindness, I'll absolutely say yes. Yes, I commit to that. And please forgive me when I'm not perfectly kind. But um, we're easily distracted from them by just who we are as people. Uh, <laughs> we fall into a uh, desires uh, uh, that aren't so easily fitted into with who we want to be in those identities. We want to be good and we want to be just, but oh yes, we do turn our eye and oh my, we see these various temptations around us. Uh, and this has been true of our entire history as, as a human being. And we're, we're not really gonna stop no matter how well we uh, uh, strive for kindness or strive for uh, um, a perfect understanding of who we are and learn to respect that socially. Um, but uh, anyway, there's a little little digression there. I come back to that poem sometimes. Hmm. I just noted <clears throat> it. I'm, I'm interested to check it out. So yeah. I start with, I, I tend to start with a poem and then I go to Plato's Allegory of the Cave and then I go to Oedipus. I'm just going to run through these. Obviously, I can, oh boy. You know, I can bore anybody with my interests. <laughs> um, I've got an Oedipus, oh. and then I've done it a few different ways. I, at that point, I try to go to a more modern novel. Um, I, I think I, I've done Anthem by Anne Rand, like a really short oh, yeah. Anne Rand. Um, I've done The Death of Ivan Ilyich, Tolstoy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm obligated to teach Shakespeare, which is an obligation I welcome. And I and I have done uh yeah. I love teaching Macbeth. I love teaching Macbeth. Ah, that is my favorite play of all of them. Yeah. Oh really? Okay. Oh yes. Yes, yes. 
Yeah. I, at the end of my Macbeth unit, sorry, at the end of my Macbeth unit, I do this like extra credit day where I do all these allusions to Macbeth. Cause I part, you know, I, I do think it's in my description to sort of be a salesman and this isn't obviously the sell I would lead with, but there is this sort of like good to be educated. <laughs> um, it, it's nice to make connections. And, and of course that's much of what learning is. So like, let me, if I can, if we could read a couple hundred pages or whatever it is, and then suddenly you have this, you know, I don't know, this expanse of connections to make. Uh, it's incredible how many like really rich allusions to Macbeth there are. So yes. there's this great uh, Robert Frost poem out, out that refers to that, that part of the tomorrow and tomorrow speech. There's um, yes. Out, out brief candle. Yeah. There's um there's this really recent or much more recent book called A Heart, A Heart So White by ha Javier Marias. I think you would, I get the sense you would really find that book interesting. Yeah. Here, uh, I'll, I'll... A Heart So White? Yeah, it's, it's a good one. There we go. I'll find it. Cool. Yeah, Here, the, I... the allusions to Macbeth are really neat. There's like a Mumford and Sons song that I heard years ago that like, <laughs> there's a sort of like a bridge that they have where it's like stars hide your fires yeah, which is yeah. this you know Macbeth sort of first realizing that he, he might have murderous thoughts towards <laughs> yep towards I think Malcolm in that game yes yes talk about guilt with your own identity um he knows he sort of knows who he is but he's not quite there yet the uh the clarifying fire of his of his wife brings him to it but <laughs> but yeah at, at first you know the, the journey of self-discovery yeah actually I really do want this <laughs> yeah. I, I always find too that Lady Macbeth's character is like interestingly where all the kids get hooked because sometimes I'll like tease them and be like you know like tomorrow we'll meet my favorite literary psychopath um or something yeah. like that but then I think they're always like a little they're they're always like a little um taken off guard by like how um kind of like for lack of a better word maybe like attractive she is or like like she is kind of they're all these like positive attributes and they're kind of like yeah. you're like into it sometimes and then it always takes a turn and they're like oh shoot. Yeah. so i find <laughs> i find that the kids are a little surprised that they're like rooting for her like really encouraged they're like yeah like go take it <laughs> yeah, well a lot of a lot of her traits are are um being promoted uh, these days, the independent, strong woman uh, concept. And Shakespeare's days, that wouldn't have been so much. I mean, there were very, there was a queen, Queen Elizabeth. There were very strong, independent, smart women, but that was, that was more of a private virtue than a, than a public one, which is what she aimed for. But yeah, the one that, that turn where, where the kids go, ah, I, I, I've taught um, Macbeth to 10th graders. Okay. Is Look at that first speech and, and now imagine your mother saying, I wish my milk were turned to gall. Yeah, take come to my woman's breasts. Yeah. Oh my God. It's a great line. And yeah, yeah. And say, no, 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 really think about it. Do you guys know what gall is? <laughs> now imagine. <laughs> and then they start realizing, wait a minute. This is this is kind of I don't want my mom doing that. Yeah. Uh, and they, you know, the, 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 the great sort of iconic female uh, 
well, what am I putting? No, it's not the right word. The, the, um, you know, the, the great stereotypes or the great sort of avatars of femininity that we have are suddenly smashed in front of them. Uh, and the avatar of, of the great man is smashed early with Macbeth. And that's something that, that very, very few of the kids would catch. And I bring him because he, he's described early on as having ripped from the navel to the nave. And I say, now, okay, what kind of soldier is this? Is he going around lightly killing people? <laughs> gently winning battles? No, yes. this, this guy is a psychotic. <laughs> <laughs> Ripping people in half. And so there, it's the Arnold Schwarzenegger sort of concept of masculinity being exploded to being a little, a little too much, maybe. And uh, then they're like, oh, yeah, this guy is a, he's, he's a great soldier, but. <coughs> and oh, that play is so wonderful. I'm sure we both taught it 20 different ways. And um, there's so much in there to catch and to pull out. Totally. I do these graded seminars with the kids, which of course tortures them at first, but by the time we get to Shakespeare, they're, they're kind of seasoned, they, they know, and, and I'm just freely, I'm not even normally tallying, I hope they never listen to this, but I'm never really keeping track of who talks and who cites a, a line and gets extra points or whatever, I just, I just sort of incentivize them to try to engage, and, and of course that, that tends to be enough, but the, um, when when we come to that seminar, it's sort of like, I'll have them write an essay, but the seminar is like, you know, like the kind of the workshop and like the way, the way they're, um, the way that we sort of like work through some of their ideas. And one of the questions, of course, is like, who's in charge here? And one of the ways I asked that in Macbeth is like, like, who do we blame? Like, do you blame the witches? Like I, I was uh, early on. Interesting. The very first line, the yeah. very first, sorry. The very first line of Macbeth is, is a stage direction. That's like, Thunder, lightning, enter three witches, and some classes I can get there with, uh, uh, I can get here with them. But other classes I have to be like, mm, you know, maybe you and you come see me. After. <laughs> uh, I don't want to bore everybody with this. But that that stage direction, thunder, lightning, enter three witches, really to me encapsulates. And obviously this is like forcing a through line, but it's like, it's a, it's this question. The whole play is this question of like, what's in charge? Like natural forces or sort of like supernatural preternatural um uh forces and and of course i think with shakespeare you you see this like always in his um these like little hints of his themes are always in his like minor characters where uh i forget there's like an old man yeah. maybe ross or like the porter or somebody and they're going back and forth and they're like how unnatural how unnatural? i can't believe a son would kill his own father how unnatural and it's like you know my kids yeah. are like wait a second like people have been killing other people fathers and otherwise for power all like it's not it, that might be the most natural um yeah so yeah, i think yeah. we're kind of like meant to to really think about the witches but then realize like how much is actually natural, like this, the green-eyed monster, or this, like, you know, this boundless ambition. Uh, I think Macbeth even says, not boundless ambition, but something like that at some point. Um, when my kids go back and they try to think about who to blame, some go to the witches, some go to Lady Macbeth, and then the really interesting ones go to Macbeth, and they're like, it was there all along, and they point to that speech that you're talking with the captain, sort of describes Macbeth in the battle, and they're like, his sword was smoking with heat from all the people he was killing. And they're like, this is a, you know, like the, like these kids are yeah. 
kind of trying their hand at being lawyers. And they were like, this is a violent man. <laughs> yeah. Enormously violent man. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point you bring up because no other play that I can think of offhand has the bad guys influenced by the fates. They don't come on stage to say, okay, Yago, your fate is going to be a total little shit to Othello. They don't come on stage to uh, uh, to uh, um, uh, and and tell uh, uh, Hamlet, "Look, you're going to really fuck up for an awful long time, and you're not going to, you're, you're, and then you're going to just cause mayhem through your indecision." Um, all of those seem to come from just the person themselves. But why does Shakespeare decide to to bring these these supernatural creatures? into Macbeth's world why can't why 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 are they even there why don't we just have a guy that's super ambitious and uh, uh, that uh, that that wonderful question it gets us to ask that's I think the one of the geni great geniuses of Shakespeare is that he doesn't answer anything for us he, <laughs> he produces these circumstances and events that leave us with these wonderful questions and famously with Iago, right? He, what are Iago's last words? They're like hauntingly ambiguous where he's like, Oh, I have to go off. He's he sort of like, they're, they're like, why did you do this? Why did you do this? And he, and he was like, the line is something like, you know what you know, from this point on, I'll never speak again. And it's sort of like, you almost can imagine like somebody, like a serial killer going to jail. And it's like, yeah. what could the worst, the, like if the serial killer really told us what, we were think, what he was thinking, we would be like obviously disgusted and would make a great Netflix show. But if we really want to be freaked out, he wouldn't say anything because we'd be yeah. like, oh yeah. my God. Yeah. And, and Shakespeare does that with Iago and you're like, holy shit. Um, yeah. But I, I definitely, I, I hate when people are like, I have to push back. Um, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, please. But I, I, I'm excited to add that I, at some point, I don't know if you've ever stumbled into the work of Rene Girard. He's like a French philosopher. He has this whole theory about like scapegoating and imitation. It's like one of those like great unifying theories. <laughs> he's, he's incredible. But he, you might be really interested to know that he has a book um, and, you know, to, to your illusion already, uh, he has a book called A Theater of Envy. Uh, and it's Gerard's essays on Shakespeare. Mm. Uh, and I stumbled upon this because he has in there, um, Gerard's sort of like the whole time, like nobody's talking about Shakespeare the right way, which is of course how to sell a book, but yep. um, <laughs> <laughs> until me. Uh, but in some ways, you know, it is a little not like, it is kind of novel. Um, but he says, except for Stephen Dedalus, <laughs> In this really strange chapter of Ulysses, where he makes this really bizarre speech about Shakespeare um, mm. in this library, and nobody's really listening to him. And then, of course, the established, you know, maybe Yates in the crowd. There's an argument that there's a Yates-like character there. Um, it's sort of like, do you even believe your own theory? And you know, he kind of yields, and he's like, I don't, I don't know. And then he shuffles off stage, and he's like, I believe, you know, Lord help my unbelief, which is, of course, like a great yes. Catholic reference um yeah yeah but in in a theater of envy yeah i don't know if gerard makes this point explicitly but it becomes clear to me having not read all of shakespeare but having read um certainly enough to start to draw this line where which you know it only takes two or three points to draw a line but 
I, uh, I was fascinated as I read A Theater of Envy and then went back, read Othello, looked at Caesar, uh, mm. Merchant of Venice, where I was looking everywhere being like, oh, do I see this? And then sure enough, you know, am I full of that book and turned into a hammer looking for a nail as I go through possibly. <laughs> but sure enough, in every case and like really quickly, and you might remember this in each case of Shakespeare that you've read, there is, it's not as if the, the desire is born of the character themselves. It's that in every case, there's somebody whispering in their ear uh, and sort of like planting this desire in them. Um, and, and so, you know, I could, yes. examples yep. abound, but you have sort of like, um, is it Cassius, you know, Cassius sort of like whispering sure. in Brutus's ear. You have Lady Macbeth whispering in Macbeth. Um, you have, who are the other really interesting ones? Um, Hamlet, you have the ghost, right? So, <laughs> sort of like whispering. And, and then that character is always conflicted where, where they have this latent desire, which is, I think, yeah. agrees with your point. Like there is this latent desire in oh, them. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. it's higher, it's closer to the top <laughs> than the bottom. But then it takes that like little like, hey man, like you deserve that. You know, like he's a piece <laughs> of shit. You should have that, right? And then they're like, yeah, he is a piece of shit. Like I should have that, right? And then so the whole tragedy kind of unfolds. Um, it's like this just that first domino. Yep, sorry. My wife is asking me if I want breakfast or not. Um, I won't keep you from that. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I wouldn't say that, um, I would never suggest that uh, I, Macbeth spontaneously, that, that would not be an interesting play. You have to have, you have to have all of these, these uh, essentially expressions of how do these things. I don't, I, I'd have to go back and reread if, if Shakespeare's monomaniacal in his desire to show that we're nobody until somebody makes us who we are. Um, and that's a, and that's a, a lovely kind of a concept of the social nature of, of, of human beings. Uh, that if we if we did live on a desert island, we would <laughs> we would never murder anybody to become king. We would never, you know, uh, uh, do any of these horrible things because uh, there would be nobody to do them to to begin with, but nobody to spur us on to bring that out in us. Um, but yeah, scapegoating responsibility. I mean, such a a powerful topic for today. Uh, responsibility. Uh, how Shakespeare handles it, I would, I, I keep coming back to the the humility that he always at, gets us to ask questions, but there are no strong answers in, in uh, Shakespeare. If there were, he would no longer be relevant. He would have fallen to the wayside as being an historical curiosity, the way that so many other plays are, that do have those moralistic solutions to the answers. They do come down to say strongly. Um, you know, the, this person did it or this person did it that, that way. It's the, it's the work with ambiguity that can be reinterpreted, re-understood and rephrased I mean, uh, for, the, for the moment. I mean, in the 18th century, they, they gave a happy ending to Lear where, <laughs> where Cordelia and, uh, and uh, Lear live happily ever after by having regained their castle again. Because that was the, they, they needed such a, uh, uh, an interpretation of the play that they had to change it. Um, mm. We're living in an age where we 
where we really need uh, so many of the interpretations of Shakespeare are stage interpretations. We have to put um, Macbeth into fascist clothing. We have to um, do all these these interpretations to make him relevant because I think we're. I show that version by the way sometimes. Oh, do you? Yeah. <laughs> well, the kids the kids love guns and. <laughs> of course, of course. I forget who was in that. The uh, Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I forget who Lady Macbeth is, but she's phenomenal in that too. And yeah. if, if they have any intimation that she's like kind of attractive while they're reading it, then like she she becomes really attractive <laughs> on screen, and then like and like you know attractive might not be the best word, but like sexualized, and the kids are like, and of course that's you know there's a, a textual basis for that, but the director did a really good job of like breathing that into that character. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the... Uh, discussing women's power over men after a manner as being essentially always sexualized and that uh, and that role yeah no I, I i i saw it years years ago and i vaguely vaguely remember it <clears throat> but it's, then it's the, a good intro it's not i i wouldn't yeah. recommend you go back you don't need to no. oh, no. remembering it is probably not yeah <laughs> yeah and then there's the the latest one that um uh, Frances McDormand plays Lady Macbeth. I watched a bit of, and I got kind of bored by it. I think she's a great actress, but she wasn't bringing out what I thought was her core, Lady Macbeth's core scariness and core attractiveness, as a, as because all good characters are are attractive. We must be seduced by Satan, says Milton. Um, <laughs> and we, uh, we, he he did his best to do that to us. Yes, yeah. People are still quoting. People are still quoting. The mind is a place of to itself or whatever that line is and it's like it's like when yep. you say that remember that we're supposed to be suspicious <laughs> of that line because it's satan saying yes yes we're absolutely seduced why this is hell nor am i in it um that uh, he carries around hell in him in his own mind which gives him all these wonderfully deliciously seductive uh, thoughts that humanity mm -hmm. we're still in love with yeah 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 so the, so the francis mcdermott thing if i may um lose my mind here um i went saw that i went saw that with my girlfriend and i you know she she was enthusiastic about it i was obviously pretty jazzed up about it and i was headed into the school year probably watched it last summer and i'm thinking this is this is like perfect timing like it's new a bunch of like stars it's absolutely studded um you know yeah this I can show this this year you know I think with when the Michael Fassbender one came out I watched it and thought you know it's a little artistic I loved it I actually really liked that Michael Fassbender one but as an intro um to Macbeth I, it didn't necessarily facilitate what yeah. I wanted to be like an interpretation of the language an interpretation of the mood didn't really facilitate that as well um one of the things I do to teach Macbeth that might frame why I didn't like the most recent one or actually hated it uh, and was was really disappointed because obviously it was like over determined to be great based on who was in it. Uh, I one of the things I do is I teach. Again, I'm a bad English teacher. I don't really spend a lot of time on like iambic pentameter or, you know, any of those. Like like maybe I'll show a picture of Shakespeare's Globe, but like I don't really do like that much historical contextualization. One of the things I do is I'll show a clip of like, um, like a Charlie Chaplin movie. Yeah. And I'll have the kids just watch it. Five minutes or whatever, just watch it. And then I have the kids in their notebook be like, what's the plot? And they write the plot. 
And then they watch it again. And then I'll say, okay, what do you think the characters would be saying to each other? And then they fill that in, right? And then, and then maybe I'll have them do like an apocryphal version of that where they have to write a next scene or they start playing with it. Or like, if you had to, if you had to score it, what kind of music would you put in, you know, throughout this thing? And uh, sorry, I can I can never tell if you're not blinking or if you froze. <laughs> no, no, I'm here. I'm listening intently. <laughs> and, uh, and what I do with the Charlie Chaplin thing is like, all right, we're going to move into Shakespeare. I've already sort of previewed Shakespeare, maybe historically, but like when we're reading it, and of course, like the cliches, like it's not meant to be read. And that, that's true. Uh, in, in some ways, it's begging to be studied, but it's not meant to be read. <laughs> and uh, I, I say, like, you're going to like really be, there's going to be like a magnetic uh, repulsion at moments where maybe you don't understand the, you know, the little turn of phrase, the cat in the adage or something like that in Macbeth. Yep. And you're going to just like want to move on past it. It's like a word. you. It's like a name you can't really pronounce you just kind of like it becomes a blur in your mind yep you bleep over it right and i tell the kids like remember this is like a play so like there's going to be gestures like you might not understand it but you could tell by the guy's face it's like bad emotion good emotion right like you can start to uh intimate like quite a bit from the production of it and one of the things i do in like sort of making that step towards analysis is like when we're just reading for comprehension as soon as we start to comprehend, I, I force them to imagine what it might look like on stage. And in yeah. some ways I get them to like produce all these different versions of Macbeth. And like, you know, I'll be like in their minds or sort of like in class. And I thought that the, I thought that the, um, I forget which Coen brother it was. And like the Coen brothers are obviously amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget which but Coen brother it was that made this, this most recent one. It wasn't, it didn't seem like it was designed for someone to understand Macbeth who didn't already understand Macbeth. Yeah. And I thought yeah. that that's in my in my thought, you know, they they were just kind of reading the lines. You have these great yeah. actors just reading the lines. It's like let them do what they do. Um yeah, you're yeah. almost like stripping them of what makes them great. Like they could really facilitate an understanding of Macbeth, maybe better than many have, um, if they're allowed to breathe interpretation into their face into the countenance into their you know their reactions to things and without that i think it actually doesn't facilitate understanding uh my girlfriend was sitting there and halfway through i was like do you know what's going on she was like yeah hadn't read macbeth maybe since high school or ever and she was like no like i'm really confused <laughs> and i think a lot of people it seemed like the the crowd was like mixed between people who already got macbeth and people who didn't and it kind of rendered the whole crowd quiet at the end and I thought, wow, like this, this really missed an opportunity, I think, to facilitate an understanding it at a really did. cool moment. I, I actually remembered digging through some of your stuff and you wrote, I think recently uh, about how we're living not in a moment of Hamlet, but in a moment of Macbeth. Is that, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. Wow. You read my blog. Thank you. Took you a look. Totally. Three other people. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, a couple of meditations on, on that. Maybe, um, uh, on uh, how uh, uh, Putin is trying to out Macbeth, Macbeth. Um, and then in terms of his ambition, he's he's really in a, a position, <laughs> I think, in Ukraine. Of, I've waited so far, tis more of a bother. It is easier to, to go over yeah. than to go back. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, no, there's, there's an awful lot of Macbeth in the modern world, sadly. <clears throat> And certainly Shakespeare more generally. 
Yes, yes. Well, that's his, that's his eternal. This is why he's, he's popular across the world. There's, there's uh, almost no, no culture that doesn't love a good Shakespeare play translated into hundreds of languages. He's, he's truly universal in this, this human appeal. Um, but yeah, no, there, ah, darn it. There were, there were three things in, in what you were talking about. Oh yes, first of all, I, I agree with you entirely. That was my annoyance. All the actors, great actor uh, across the board really did just read the lines. And that, if anything, that would annoy the hell out of me in class with my students when they would read them monotone. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, through it. And uh, the few occasions I would, um, I would remember to say, no, 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 take the time to get them to stand up and to act out the moments, but have the other kids in the class say, now, wait a minute, he read that out monotone while he was saying there, is that really what's going on? And at least one in the class would say, no, no, he's actually angry at this point. I'm like, yes, yes, you see the emotion there. My God, okay, so uh, what do you sound like when you're angry? Okay, read that line angry. Um, and, but, you know, again, with that, uh, with uh, Gerard being upset that nobody understands Shakespeare and everybody has got it wrong. I remember watching Ian McKellen describe how to do uh, uh, one of the great speeches. I forget which yes, one. Yes, I know this. I know this video. Yeah. I got so frustrated with him. He got it wrong. Really? He got it so wrong. I was so upset. And but, you know, of course, he gets he gets his Shakespeare. I get my Shakespeare. Everybody gets their own Shakespeare. But I would read those lines in an entirely different way. And I, I think that's the power of Shakespeare. I'm not right. I don't think he's right. I think nobody is right. Shakespeare allows this marvelous ambiguity to pick out your own experience from it. But still, McKellen's wrong. <laughs> is, this, is this the clip, the McKellen clip where he's talking, he's doing sort of like a an actor's round circle thing and he's talking about the piano. Does he have that analogy with the piano? I, oh, I can't remember the analogy of the piano. All I can remember is so long ago that I saw it. All I can remember is that he was, I think he was uh, reading about, you know, the uh, time, endless time, um, that great uh, soliloquy after, um, after Lady Macbeth, there would have been yeah. a moment. And what it should be to my mind is he is feeling true remorse, uh, true sadness, true mourning over his wife. He's saying, he's saying, I can't mourn now, but then he mourns. Um, he's saying there, there, there's been a moment. I've got, yeah. I've got, I've got other shit to deal with right now. <laughs> I've got an army coming on the page. Uh, but then he <laughs> does, he does, he gets lost in his relationship with her. And it's, and I remember McKellen just, he, he reads it as if he's continually plotting. And I don't think he's continually plotting mm. um, or, or trying to, uh, uh, suss out his next moves. It's I. I just I, I. I don't remember the specifics, but I remember being frustrated with, with what Macbeth is truly feeling at that moment because he's he's not a he, he's not just an Arnold Schwarzenegger two two dimensional character who can, um, rend people from their chops to their knaves. Uh, he's also a full character. He's a full human being and. and uh, and he evolves through the play. He doesn't. He doesn't end up where he began, as a as a person. And that 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 anyway. I'm digressing into um, 
<laughs> the funniest kind of <laughs> kind of annoyances with great actors who are far better. God, put me on a stage, I would I would be laughed off <laughs> for uh, a complete inability to bring out what is there in Macbeth himself. But as an as an armchair Macbeth reader, yes, tell us. He should have gone for the fourth down, kind of a, yeah. a kind of a complaint. If if Ian, um, I I apologize. You said what? If Ian is listening, I apologize. I hope he is. That'd be great for me. <laughs> if he is listening, I actually enjoyed that video. <laughs> I'd yeah, love to have you on, I, Ian. <laughs> I did too. Yeah. So he he has this great line in there where he talks about going and seeing this this you know famous pianist and he says he says there was a moment where i was watching him and i wasn't sure if he was putting the music into the piano or pulling it out and he said a great actor it's a great first of all it's a great line he's yeah. like a great a great actor does that where you're actually not sure if he you you should think that he's coming up with it right yes um, yes like yes. it's not like he's read like he's not doing the play like he is this character saying these words and thinking it right um it's it's really hard. I have this weird theory that um, I had a, one professor that ever put me to sleep, and <laughs> the lights were such, and it was big. And that's good. I just had one, yeah, which I think is rare. But he would read his lecture notes, and I remember thinking I was at the time also taking these like classes in linguistics, and uh, I remember you know and there were all these like cool social experiments that they were you know we were working our way through, and uh, I remember thinking I would love to know whether it be through EEG or whatever, or just some expert telling me, if the brain is doing something different when, uh, huh. when you're engaged in direct speech that isn't rehearsed or pre-thought um, yeah. out, premeditated or, or written down versus when you're actually reading something. Uh, yes. Because I certainly felt less engaged. And I, you know, I have all these like, yes, I guess absolutely. these like, I have all these like, in <clears throat> intimations about like maybe it has something to do with you don't know where I'm going and so you're you're along with me and you're kind of curious about where I'm going where but I don't know why that's not true about the the reading but maybe it feels I don't know but there's certainly something you know you, you see it too like when your kids are just reading the thing and it's like yep. <laughs> that there's a massive chasm between you know me me reading that or a kid reading that and like their ability to make you think that they're thinking that as they say it. Yeah, mm. if there if there isn't a difference, there must be, and I, I'd say that because I, I, only a small percentage of the brain is devoted to conscious thought. Um, very little of it is our our rational linguistic thinking. So much, so much of our brain is devoted to emotions, anxieties that are, are vague, you know, are nameless. If somebody walks up behind you and, and claps their hands, you 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 start, and that's your brain reacting to your environment. Um, so when somebody is speaking and what they're saying is not aligned with what you're feeling, the ninety percent of the rest of your brain as it reacts to your environment. When those are out of alignment, of course, you're, there's this, a, a strange, there has to be a disconnect. It's what, what's happening is, is surreal, it's not real. Um, when there's that, that connection, when what you're experiencing is a whole and it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And what you're, why great actors I think are so much more 
about emotion than they are about the words. I think um, you can feel a great performance far more than you can understand it or listen to it. Uh, why uh, even today you can watch a Shakespeare play and the, the, the language is so archaic. Uh, you can miss so many of the words, but still it's a damn good play. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're feeling it. You're, you're, you're catching it in that regard. Um, yeah. The, the professors that read in a monotone manner, you, you're not, you're not feeling the words. You're, you're not, you're only capturing it with a small part of your brain. You're, you're not capturing um, what the words mean as they should be expressed because look out should be shouted and I love you should be whispered. Um, and when, or yelled or, you know, or yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can picture a rooftop scene, you know, <laughs> it's right. <laughs> well, then that has a different emotional weight. <laughs> each of them does. Each of them does. Yeah. So you, you can't, yes. Or, um, or as they say, the, the great misalignment is when your girlfriend says, it's fine. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. Or, or it's perfect. It's perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> now I know you're lying. <laughs> right, right. And you're, 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 what you're hearing <laughs> through that 90% of your brain that is not just the words is telling you something else. Totally. Yeah, we you're went... Sorry. My wife and I go to uh, uh, see the moth. Are you familiar with the moth? Uh, um, the moth podcast? Uh, yes, there's a podcast, but yeah, it's a story storytelling thing. Storytelling events. Yeah, where people, uh, you, anybody can come in and sign up and are given five minutes on the stage to tell a story. And one of their rules is that you can't read from notes. Um, and uh, the best performances are absolutely when somebody gets up there and they tell a story that's vivid in their memory. So they don't need notes. They, they know this story. Uh, and the many times we've been only once did uh, a speaker get up and she was very nervous. And she said, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to break the convention. I'm going to read from my cell phone. And her, I, I don't no. even story. <laughs> I, I don't have zero recollection of what she said. All I remember was that it was totally unlike what everybody else had done. It was a, and then I did this, and then I did that, and then I did this, and then I did that, and then I did this, and then I did that, and, then I did that, and it really broke me up and it destroyed my life. Thank you very much. And there was this complete disconnect, yeah, from that, from that reading. Uh, somebody who can read a book aloud and give it life, that's a real skill. Uh, something that they've not experienced they're not doing it from memory <clears throat> and um yeah so there i just wanted you i broke i, I cut you off there i broke the flow of thought that you had well, I, I there's something i want to go back to but i want to make sure you're okay with time sure sure um but at breakfast is getting cold but that's fine that's yeah, you can, please please just eat it <laughs> no no quite all right I don't want to keep anybody from that. I'm a, I'm a big believer of three meals a day. I know that's not very, that's not in vogue. <laughs> no, it isn't. Or, at least or, for me, I, I would like to eat at least three times a day. I'm happy with going over. Maybe even sitting down with people to eat socially. Yeah. Let's not get crazy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go that That's far. so antiquated. Can I actually, uh. Um, I, I have this, I want to go back to this thing and I don't want to, 
I, I'm, I'm actually okay with forcing it, but it, it would, it would be great if I could make it seem really natural. <laughs> sure. Um, oh, there was a burning question. There were a few, yeah. <laughs> the lights dim. Um, there were a few threads that kind of made me think to go here. And I think some of them were, um, <laughs> so all of them are, are suddenly fleeing. Um, some of them might have been this idea that uh, you you young people think too much. <laughs> and and so uh, life sort of becomes a problem that you have to figure out. Yep. Uh, and and I actually I actually, you know, it seems like we agree on this from different angles where, you know, I'm like, just just do what you do. And if you want to try to explain it, then maybe just explain what you do. Right. Yep. Not in a limiting way, like I am a teacher, but like, like, like I, I, the most accurate thing might not be the marker that we use. It might be, you know, a memoir. And, and of course there's an inefficiency there. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to be able to read everybody's memoir, hear what everybody's day is like, but, but that if you're really interested in what they do, that might be the answer. Sure. Um, so, so this idea that like we think too much, uh, life is a problem that we have to kind of figure out. And of course that's, you know, that's not unique to my generation or, uh, I don't even think it's increasingly, I mean, maybe actually historically, perhaps that's the point I read recently. I, I have to send you this, this lecture, this, are you familiar with Joseph Campbell here with a thousand faces, uh, the hero's journey, the monomyth, uh, the monomyth. Uh, yeah, that does ring, ring a bell, but, uh, God, I feel like I've, I've read that a thousand years ago and I've completely forgotten. Well, I'll have to send you this, uh, you know, and you, you can, you don't even have to pretend that you ever listened to it, but you might find it really interesting. He has this lecture. He's got this, well, there's this podcast now in his name that sort of releases some of his old lectures. Yeah. And this guy's an absolute legend and a hero of mine. Um, he's a comparative mythologist, fascinating guy. And here with a thousand faces, essentially the argument that there's a, there's an archetypal arc to all of our hero myths. And he starts yeah. with like the, you know, the sort of Gilgamesh and Prometheus. And, and there's like, you know, obviously a few different categories of like yeah. what the, you know, you take the boon. Sometimes you have to sneak the boon out. And that's sort of the Promethean story or like you bring you bring the, the boon back through Rome. And that's sort of For a different sure. archetype, uh, yes. whether or not you're received, et cetera. But he, he, he starts with these like, you know, sort of, um, I don't know how to categorize them, but those sort of, uh, less cerebral myths for lack of a better term and moves towards the sort of religious myths and and yep. as he moves towards that march from from like sort of gilgamesh to jesus to me is like totally fascinating yeah and and like you know comparing jesus and buddha and their sort of hero arcs and i think one of the versions of his book here with a thousand faces is sort of this like pixelated um uh mosaic of all these different heroes but making jesus's face <laughs> <laughs> which which of course you know like a catholic might love that jesus is on the cover but then they, they might sure. realize they might realize that he's totally deconstructing <laughs> yeah. their entire religion uh, <laughs> one of his lines is like um myths are other people's religions <laughs> and religions are misunderstood myths <laughs> and, I, and i have to say like he, he's almost made me more like religious isn't the right word and many would disown me 
but he's maybe much more interested in like the tradition I was raised in Roman Catholicism. Yeah. Yeah. But by looking at it like a myth and I see this all, like I'm, I work in a Catholic school and if I, yeah. if I give my kids Prometheus or Sisyphus or better yet, Albert Camus essay on Sisyphus, they will, their interpretive um, powers are on full display. They're like, Oh, yeah. it's this, and it's that, you know, <clears throat> Prometheus is like Elon Musk. And like, <laughs> you know, he's like the future and technology and, uh, we're not ready for it. And I'm like, wow, this is incredible. But then if I hand them the New Testament, they're like, he put the demons in the birds that like they like totally all interpretive power shut down. <laughs> and, I, and I think that to, to Campbell's point, that's sort of like them locking up. It's like, like, don't read this like a newspaper, read it like a myth and then and then see where your mind goes. And if you want to go back to the newspaper interpretation, yep. uh, it, it's, it's not my way, but fine. Um. He has this. He has this lecture that I'll send you, um, and he talks about. It's really about the art of um, and and the books of Thomas Mann, Thomas Mann, the the German writer, in relation to Joyce. Patrick uh, Mountain, lovely stuff. Yeah, totally. Joseph novels and um, Wooden Brooks, yeah. and he introduces Mann and Joyce through like these. German philosophers that would have influenced them. And one of them is Schopenhauer. And I'm going to try to speed up here so, so you can, you're not, you're not totally giving up on breakfast. Um, and please eat whenever you want. Right. I can fast till, uh, I don't know, till noon. That's fine. Till, till breakfast. Um, so, he, so he does this thing on Schopenhauer and he's sort of like, Schopenhauer is like really interested in like this, this energy that, that informs the world. And yeah, yeah. Um, and, and how as, as Schopenhauer sort of unravels this thing for himself, he's like, oh my God, like there's this energy that's in all of us. And, and you know, there would have been Eastern philosophy that would have been breathed into his um, philosophy, like this, yeah. this uh, Eastern idea of like Maya, like, which is my idea of it is, is aligns with Schopenhauer. And uh, he's like, what is consciousness? Consciousness is essentially you know, like our, people are conscious, fine. Our, our dog's conscious, fine, right? Um, is the is the horse in the polo game conscious, fine, even though he's kind of a, and it's like our plants conscious because they're heliotropic and they face the sun, right? And it, it kind of goes down and down and down and down. And, and then it's like, well, is this rock or this pen conscious? And it's like, no. And it's like, all right, well, I, I bet if I drop this pen, it's going to know exactly where the ground is. Right. <laughs> and, and Schopen, that's kind of Schopenhauer's idea is that like, there's this energy um, yeah. on a fundamental side, it's like gravity and, and the plant side, it's heliotropism, but it's, you know, like sort of this mechanistic, like if I get cut, you know, like these white blood cells are going to rush to that. Or I, I'm sure that's not actually how it works, but something's going to rush to something. <laughs> yep. I, I'm not willing that, right? There's this mechanistic energy thing. Well, yeah. Schopenhauer starts there and then he's like, okay, all of life seems to be life eating itself. Yep. And he realizes in the face of that, that it's kind of horrific, right? Like <laughs> these animals <laughs> ripping each other apart. And he says at one point, like life is something that shouldn't have been. And Nietzsche, yeah. who looks back on Schopenhauer, Schopenhauer as something of a hero, is like, that's where he went wrong. Life isn't this puzzle that needs to be worked out, and it shouldn't be something we should reject. Um, yeah. We should, you know, like Nietzsche's great term is amor fati, love of fate. He's like, if you regret a single moment of your life, you're, you're, it's such a web that you're unraveling the whole thing. Uh, right. And in his essay, 
the, the birth of tragedy. He talks about this Apollonian instinct and this Dionysian instinct. The Apollonian is sort of like the individual and the, the, the potential of the individual. And the Dionysian is sort of um, uh, that like life energy, right? And that life energy is going to necessarily like tear apart the individual, right? Like if your life, God willing, has a full arc, eventually, you know, that, that same energy that tells his pen where to go is going to pull you yep. apart. <laughs> yep. And uh, Nietzsche says, like, life isn't a problem we should figure out. And why is it that when Socrates comes around in the middle of sort of like the Greek tragedy era, yep. art gets worse? And he sort of <laughs> makes the argument that like the height of it is an Aeschylus. And then, you know, by Euripides, it started becomes cliche because... Yeah you're not marrying those two principles. The, the desire for the individual to try to be fulfilled and be its, reach its potential or whatever. And this, you know, the, the sort of like life energy that's always going to render that tragic, either in the short term or the long term, it's going to get you. Um, and, and if we excuse one or the other, like art starts to unravel. Yeah. Um, yes, I, yes. So, <laughs> And I thought to bring that up because it'd be really interesting to think like as we young people think too much, right? <laughs> Are we losing that appreciation for that Dionysian principle in Nietzsche's words? Uh, and it, for Nietzsche, the, the archetype that would save us would be like, uh, you know, he, he kind of harpoons Socrates, <laughs> great thinker that he might've been, but he says that there was a muse that came to Socrates one day that said, Socrates, like, learn how to sing. And for Nietzsche, the archetype that would save us would be like the music singing Socrates. <laughs> yeah. The sort yeah. of cerebral, <clears throat> on the one hand, really thoughtful, and on the other hand, really sp like spontaneous and creative and and not sort of um, belabored by your thoughts. Like, don't don't make it a puzzle, like, you know, sometimes make it a dance and sometimes make it a song and sort of like ebb and flow between those two yeah. i i hear in your uh criticism of of sort of like the newer generations this shift towards a total apollonian principle and and sort of losing that like you, you know you <laughs> called it history but it's like just like be be in it you know yes yes so thank first of all thank you for being patient for <laughs> sure sure <laughs> Well, go there are about 400 thought trains in, in what you've just said. So um, not to ignore any of them, but first I have tremendous admiration and it's a gentle for the modern generation with a gentle tease. Um, you're, you're opening up, I, I think the modern generations are opening a Pandora's box. Bully on you, good, you know, go for it, uh, dive in. Uh, and, but nothing is solved right now. Uh, it's all opening up and it's growing and it's evolving and it's changing every day. And over my short, tiny little lifespan, um, the only the, the questions are awesome and they're wonderful to ask. Uh, but when definitive answers are presented and placed on the table, that's when I get worried and I say, wait a minute, it's always more complicated than that, no matter how much of a solution you feel you've got. Uh, yeah, it is an, an, it is something of an Apollonian uh, stage in, in the in our development, we're we're deciding that words and these intellectual concepts are extraordinarily important, and we have to figure them out, and we have to define them. And I'd say, well, well, yeah, this is good. Words words do matter, 
Uh, sticks and stones may break our bones, but words also uh, have very strong um, influences over what we do and uh, how we act. And, you know, the truth does matter after that manner. As Slippery, if you keep delving down uh, in this sort of revolution that, that Derrida started to sort of deconstruct and pull things apart, the further you go, the more complicated it comes. It doesn't, it doesn't resolve. It doesn't, all the, all the square pegs don't fit into square holes. Um, and you can get squirrely. Uh, my, my specialty was the 18th century when I was in grad school. And there were, uh, Jonathan Swift was part of it. Um, the rest of them have all been lost to history, but there are all of these proposals to, um, uh, to get rid of all ambiguity in language uh, to uh, rid it of its, of its uncertainties. And once we reach the, the language that Adam spoke, then there will be universal harmony. We will all get along. We just have to figure out what that language was. Was it Hebrew? Um, was it something else? And once we're all speaking the same language, it, it, I mean, it produced Esperanto in, in our, our age, this idea that if we all are speaking the same language and we all mean the same thing when we say, I don't know, I don't even want to say one of the, the more difficult words uh, that we're wrestling with these days. If we all mean the same thing, then we'll all be fine. Uh, but um, uh, they, they mean very sh various shades of difference and they keep shifting and changing and people take offense at hearing things that they, they didn't take offense at so much or maybe they did and they took it privately, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, but that Apollonian exercise is important. It's part of us. Of course, we have to shift around. It's not a criticism. It's more of an observation, something of an admiration. Um, if we were truly <clears throat> just remaining with tradition, we wouldn't be growing as a species. And if anything, that's our, our nature uh, is to, we're tool makers. We are, we are, uh, we are tool make. That's how we, we, um, uh, we've sort of conquered the planet after that manner. It's not because we have bigger teeth or we were bigger, large, we're not the apex predator because we're faster. It's because we're tool makers. We use our hands to create uh, and innovate and overcome uh, the elements, other creatures. Uh, we create the hoe to, um, to, uh, uh, to plant uh, and cultivate. We, and then we use our, our, the other half of us, our hands and our brains to, to, um, to do this. And so we're ever innovating. I mean, we, we've gone from stone tools to the space shuttle, although that dates me <laughs> even to say the space, that's ancient history. We've now got SpaceX and these just giant stainless steel rocket and, the, and more people walking on the moon. You know, these, we've got the internet, we've got uh, laptop computers that are smarter than we are that write our emails for us. Um, and uh, uh, so that aspect of that endless innovation, that endless change is part of us and it can't be denied that con conservation or the conservative bent is not about preserving the past. Uh, conservativeness is about, is about changing in a way that preserves the best of the past. 
um, of, of uh, preserving what is best that we have discovered is best because we were the past wasn't crap and we're only just now figuring out how to do it right. Um, right now is soon will be the past and we'll look back upon what we're doing now and say we didn't get it right then because that's our nature we will always be changing and improving but we can we every we do stumble upon some pretty good things over history and as long as we can still preserve those good things by changing them then we will have uh, uh, a better future um and I, it's some, somehow this has sort of turned into somehow I'm a uh, or this this interview and that I'm giving advice to the young generation <laughs> which isn't the case at all I, I don't stand on street corners um holding up uh gravity's rainbow saying you know look repent uh read. no one's reading pension anymore come on no one's reading pension he's so so ancient history we're all on everybody we, moved on to wallace <laughs> yes it was good. exactly who likes for, pension for, for obscure reading we've moved on to david foster and and all of his uh his marvelous meanderings of the mind <clears throat> um uh but yeah no i don't know Maybe I should stop being a stop being a critic of modern social the modern social world. And uh, uh, I don't know what 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 do you find of the past that you really want to get rid of, and what of the past do you really want to keep? Jesus. I'd love to get rid of this cold. <laughs> um, I'd love Good. to shake it once and for all. A practical answer is is among the best <laughs> i am a terrible question answer answerer um so i i mu i might deflect but as i deflect let me <laughs> well, let me right. think about this um, you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah this is my show god damn it um <laughs> just kidding i uh when you said interview, I was like, oh man, I haven't, I haven't, this has been terrible. This is, <laughs> if an interview is what you're looking for, I'm sorry. <laughs> right. No, no, this is. Uh, uh, I, very... I, would much I would much rather this most of the time. There are people who will be specialists and I'll be like, oh, so what do you think about this? And they're like, well, I, I'm not, I'm this. I'm like, yeah, but come on. You've been, <laughs> you've been thinking for a while, like give it a shot. Like, I don't, I'm not going to go take what you say and try something new like right, right don't worry i'm not <laughs> i might forget about it so you might as well just start thinking um <clears throat> there's something really interesting about this like tool um tool maker thing homo there's probably a word right homo whatever tool maker father yeah homo what man maker homo I keep missing... it is okay uh i keep missing that word that you're saying i don't know if it's the audio uh, homo faber or faber f-a-b-e-r and that means like, a man maker man interesting um i could be wrong i think it's the name of a book which i haven't read yeah well speaking of which not to blow your spot up or to you know whatever you can tell me if you want me to cut this you can tell me whatever you want really um if i think josephine was telling me about a little bit about uh your book proposal that's in the works right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and obviously there's echoes of that and what we're talking about right now with this sort of like sure. maker thing. Yeah. Um, there's this really interesting problem for me where it's like, I, like when Josephine Austin and I were first talking about this, I, you know, like, uh, 
I'm dangerous because I'll just come up with theories and, you know, um, I, I don't have the discipline to really prove them or think about them anymore. No, those are the best. Right. But I was like, oh my God, I have this theory that we don't always, and, and I, excuse me if I don't get this exactly right, but you're, one of the, the, the trails that you're going down that you're really interested in is like, is there this, is there this like widening gulf or this like exasperating divorce kind of thing where from um our our sort of like mental worlds or our cerebral worlds and this sort of like uh really tangible like craft making constructing tinkering making things uh that are much more physical and is there like a danger in those two things widening too much um i'm sure i didn't just nail that i'll I'll pass it to you in a second but when sure. that idea that that's how I internalized it came up and Josephine and also were talking about it, I was like, ah, oh, I have this theory all the time that we actually don't know what we are <laughs> and that we forget, <laughs> we, we forget that we're like, our brains are our bodies. Like there's always this like head yes. mind, head, uh, what does they call that? Like the mind body problem, right? <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's not Word, a problem. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it's your, your body is not the vehicle for your mind. Like, uh it, yoga is sort of this like i think yoga means like unity or uniting something and and the mm. way that i've understood it at least the way that i appreciate understanding it is that like yoga is the act of like uniting um consciousness with the with the root of consciousness with which is your body right sure sure and there there seems to be a primacy more and more that's granted to to the the you know the top half of us that forgets yeah. the bottom half right and of course, yep. the bottom half will always emerge, right? <laughs> Freud will have his day. Um, yeah, the old joke about the asshole. <laughs> is it everybody has them? No, that uh, <laughs> all the organs of the body declare that they're really the best. Like the, the brain says, I'm in charge. The heart says, um, I'm uh, you know, the soul of the emotions, all of this. And the stomach says, no, no, you wouldn't get anywhere without me. And I'm the greatest source of pleasure in eating. And the asshole says, nope. I'm in charge. <laughs> they worry, what do you mean? He also says, simple. If I close up, all the rest of you don't get anything done. So, he, so the asshole teaches the rest of the body uh, that it's really in charge by just closing up and not opening for like two weeks. <laughs> that's that's and, what, I thought that joke was going to end with you being like, the, the asshole says he gets the last word. <laughs> well, there is that too. We all need an exit strategy. Um, but that's, that's the Rabelais of um, you know, the, the true earthiness of humanity, uh, the delight in eating, the delight in sexuality, the delight in living this physical aspect of life with thought being sort of this, like a backpack that you have to carry on in life. Oh yeah, I gotta think about shit. Oh yeah, religion tells me I should be good. No, you just go to live. <clears throat> um, but yeah, that, uh, uh, I'll, I'll give you a quotation from 1961 and uh, an interesting thinker who's sort of been forgotten, Buckminster Fuller, and I have to read it because I don't have it memorized, that industrialization is inevitably headed toward the disenfranchisement of man as a physical machine. And that, that quotation really sums up this sense that machines are going to replace us. And we have that <clears throat> robots will do all the work for us uh, relatively soon. <clears throat> uh, we now have the four day work week, work which I we wish. <laughs> yes, we have that. And so do my kids. Have to do, 
And when we can get rid of work, we will no longer do it. We also think of work as somewhat, um, as we also think of work as physical. Uh, and then we have to be reminded, oh yeah, we, we are information workers as well. We sit at a laptop, we come up with ideas. Uh, and David, David Graeber's book, Bullshit Jobs, I think does a pretty good polemical uh, argument about you know, the vast majority of this intellectual or, or brain worker is total bullshit. And a lot of the physical stuff is too. <clears throat> and it's, it's, it's becoming more and more busy work. We have the technology, so to speak, to no longer have to lift our hand or even use our brain to survive. We can outsource all of this. And my book is, is um, about uh, really about how unhealthy this is, how uh, these strains of um, deciding that, that uh, the mental work uh, should be divided from the physical work. You need uh, a designer and then you need a workman uh, and their separate roles. And this, is, this, this division between white and blue collar labor uh, across all societies really began with agriculture. Um, you, you, you end up uh, at not, and Graeber in his other book explodes the myth that they went hand in hand. <clears throat> they didn't, agriculture uh, uh, did not create uh, private property, did not create bureaucracy, did not create uh, the, the modern state. Uh, we, had, we had agriculture for tens of thousands, even probably hundreds of thousands of years uh, before we had those things, but they do create agriculture. You could say does create that ability to have a mind worker, essentially a bureaucrat, someone who doesn't need to dig in the dirt, who can sit in an office somewhere and spend their day tallying how much work someone else has done, and then be recompensed for that mind work, so to speak. And there's there there there's that division. Uh, the book is uh, the book is basic. Uh, oh, the book's title is "Handmade Purpose: The um, uh, The Power of Workmanship in the Digital Age," uh, and it's it's not saying that everybody should go work with their hands uh, and make things, but that when you do when you do make things, you're tapping into uh, a history of humanity, a history of your body, a history of our body and our mind that goes way 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 back. Uh, we're really, uh, and science is catching up with this and discovering amazing things about how language and tool making are inter intertwined um, to say that we're, we're really set up. Our entire, our entire mechanism as a creature is set up to create tools. Uh, and when we're doing that, that is our purpose, the same way that it's a bird's purpose to fly. Uh, the same way that fish swim, uh, we almost don't even realize that we're fulfilling our purpose as 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 creatures by by being homo faber, by being the man maker uh, to create these things. Now, religions in the history of humankind have come quite late in terms of our history. Uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition goes back maybe what four or five six thousand years somewhere in there and that um, uh, that tradition uh, of course gets mixed up with greek thought and creates this weird hybrid 
that no one really is, is quite figured out. We have impulses in both directions. Uh, and uh, uh, that's a whole other lovely topic. I've got a very good friend who could speak much more uh, uh, interestingly on that, that weird hybrid that we've, we have of, um, but um, so that's sort of the idea sort of jump in about sort of you have like on the one hand, the democratic thing, which is like the wisdom of crowds in the Greek tradition. And then on the other hand of the Judeo-Christian tradition, it's like a deep skepticism of crowds where it's like never in the Bible <laughs> is the crowd <laughs> correct. Right. And I, and I do think we right. are like, a, we're, we're we, the, the, the strange hybrid product of those two things, which, which yeah. might be actually, there might be some wisdom in that tension. There, there's wisdom in that tension, but it, it's, it's horribly mixed. You have the prophetic tradition of the, of the Old Testament channeled into this singular fe- uh, figure of Jesus that gives us you know, faith and knowledge of things unseen. At the same time, our, our universities uh, in the study of man look to the, uh, to the Greek tradition of the Socratic, let's let's talk about this. Let's figure this through, which is the mind working rather than the prophetic um, sort of uh, uh, revealed yeah. tradition. Yeah. The two don't mix. They really don't mix. <clears throat> and yes, it's produced a, a fascinating body of knowledge, but it's a lot like trying to blend oil and water. Um, and we end up with this slurry where, if you if you delve into um, the prophetic tradition with a, a, a with a Greek sort of mindset to figure it out. It doesn't make sense. Uh, Jesus walking on water. Um, it uh, okay, no, uh, eh. but then from the from the uh, a virgin birth. <laughs> uh, and so, but we have we have both of them. We have um, and this well, frankly, this produces that weird creature, the Protestant, who sits down to interpret the Bible on their own, uh, to, to apply reason and thought and understanding to these tales, to then apply it to its own, to his or her own life. They're like, ah! Um, there are, uh, uh, yeah, there are, are deeply conflicted and fascinating um, connections in there. And I'm certainly no expert on it. I've just had some, been introduced to it by a very good friend, Dave Crosby, who's a, who is a character that may, perhaps you should meet <clears throat> no, this is supposed to be my podcast where I don't talk about religion, Strother. So you're really, you're really screwing oh, me up here. All right. Well, <laughs> just no, kidding. No, no I, every part of my body wants to talk about this. So <laughs> I, I think what we, I think what we get with that hybrid and here I go here, with that hybrid is, is like, my joke would be what you get is you get a bunch of scientists and intellectuals who then one day try a psychedelic, <laughs> yes. claim to have a religious experience and then realize realize yes. that we've been going all at it one way and then and then they're they're sort of looking around like this for the rest of their life going we actually don't know what this is <laughs> yes and, and well modern physics is is making the argument that perhaps some um, modern physicists some of them are saying it's becoming plausible according to physics that um schopenhauer was right that consciousness is universal um and all things are buddha things the 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 biologists and the the um uh, that have been studying the brain and trying to figure out the seat of consciousness keep coming away. They keep picking at pieces and discovering they've got nothing. Um, that that uh, it is sort of as if we're tuning into it from elsewhere. Otherwise, how do you get um, pigeons that can use gravity to navigate? Um, 
and other fascinating things. But yes, but on Dave, uh, uh, Dave is a very interesting fellow. He grew up uh, poor in Connecticut, uh, joined a, a motorcycle gang of the real sort, as in competing with the Hells Angels. Uh, at the same time, got his master's in, um, uh, in world religions, focusing on East Asian religions and learned um, uh, very passable Chinese. Uh, he is a, a classic Harley mechanic uh, and a um, uh, and it also a, a contractor with a specialty in earth moving. Uh, his wife has got her doctorate in biology and has worked with um, the uh, uh, Bureau of Land Management trying to uh, get this, <laughs> the government to um, uh, to properly take care of 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 our land. He's also a furniture maker. <laughs> They're not cooperating. <laughs> no, they're not. Believe it or not, uh, why we have wildfires the way we do. <clears throat> uh, Dave also, uh, he's ex-military and um, uh, trains uh, uh, Malinois uh, for, uh, for scent training. Uh, he can uh, uh, take a Malinois and teach how to find a single bullet in an entire high school. What is a Malinois? Uh, a dog? A Mal Bel Belgian Malinois. Uh, they are the, the, the primary military uh, and police dog in the world, uh, mainly raised in Central Europe, uh, but they, they're then farmed out to uh, the, entire, uh, the entire world. So if you see a, a dog in a military video, it's a Belgian Malinois. They look sort of like black-faced, short-haired German shepherds. <clears throat> and they're amazingly smart, amazingly physical, uh, and other yeah, uh, uh, dogs. There's a movie that just came out. I think uh, one of our big Hollywood actors, I forget his name, uh, maybe Chris Pine or something, uh, has a story. It's a story of a of a an ex-military Malinois that he has to adopt and and take home, and the difficulties of uh, working with these dogs. They're they're not good pets at home. Uh, Malinois will destroy a home in in seconds. Enormously. <laughs> powerful they're enormously um they love biting things and people hmm. oh. <laughs> but dave's uh, dave's melanois are are wonderfully gentle i've, I've spent well adjusted <laughs> many hours with them but i will be sitting at the at the dining table and, and i'll feel a dog's jaws on my arm and i'll look down and there will be um uh, nelly with her her mouth around my arm and say oh that's just the way she's saying she's like she likes you I look at these jaws that could snap my my arm in a in a, in a millisecond. Uh, well, I'd love to talk but, to Dave. Lord knows I love a polymath. So, yeah, he's he's a real polymath. He has a uh, and he continues to learn. He's into his sixties. Uh, there are very few things that he does not know something very insightful and intelligent about. Sounds fascinating. Uh, and we've talked endlessly about the the um and i've learned and from him endlessly about the the tensions between the uh the greek philosophical tradition and how it's blended itself into uh, the judeo christian tradition yeah. in the west the strange bizarre uh results from it in our daily lives today um the uh <laughs> anyway uh but no we were we were heading into something else about Oh, about making and this crazy book that I'm working on. Um, yeah, the uh, 
a lot of the book is to ask, is to interview much like this. And I'm working on a podcast uh, uh, to ask people, do you make, what do you make and what do you get about it? Mm. Get sorry. And the, the answers are that, you know, I, I don't think about those things. They aren't, you know, I, 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 what do you mean? I, you make, you make food, don't you? You make meals. Most people do. Uh, yeah, I do, but it's not, it's not up in the conscious. And, and so mm. truly is very much a place where we don't think with our heads. Mm. Uh, there are places we go, my wife knits, my sister knits, um, they're relaxation areas. We're using what do you call the wisdom of your hands. Mm. Uh, we create, uh, and I, early tool makers weren't sitting down saying, I need to invent a better rock. Uh, it was, <laughs> was not a, a, a cerebral process. That, that's very much baggage. But we mm. did. We played around with rocks. Uh, we, um, we discovered that when we did certain things to them, we got better results when we did other things with them. And what do most, you do? Sorry, you go. No, no. Uh, most fascinatingly, <clears throat> modern theories of, of language is that we learned language from our hands. Now, the, the concept is that uh, the first languages that human beings used were, uh, were sign languages. We did not the speakers. We began to sign, we still use it. We, we yeah. still have yeah. <laughs> and the first languages came from um, uh, a uh, uh, came from tool making. The tool making is a sequential process. You have to do things in a certain order. You have to understand your material, what it can do, what you need to do to it to create something from it. And that this process to make complex tools requires uh, a memory that most other creatures don't have dogs. Dogs' memory is about a second and a half. Um, that you know, if you create a, uh, you can create a um, an association with the dog by doing something within a second and a half of it doing something else, and then it will associate the two. Human beings, we have this amazing capacity of short-term memory to remember 10, 20 things in a row. That is the theory is that that was developed wordlessly in our ability to create tools and that another part of the mind but to but to teach this to some other to another person they had to watch and hand gestures became part of this you know pointing this part of the rock uh pointing um describing you know something heavy uh, be, were were hand gestures and that, that the hand gestures, the, this, this structure, this mental structure that we created to be able to create tools was co-opted by our communication part of the brain. So the very same structures that we use to create tools became the foundation for language. We have subject, we have verb, we have word order, we have inflection. Um, all of those are tool making, uh, tool making aspects and that so those early languages were, were hand-oriented. You would show the other person in your tribe what you had learned how to make by both making it with your hands, but then also gesturing in a complex manner. And then that structure then became useful for doing other things that weren't tool making, uh, such as expressing emotions, um, such as, uh, you know, uh, sure. you know 
the emotions across the range. And then abstracting, and then because language is abstract, you don't need to be making tools. You can just use your hands to talk. That abstraction got further and further abstracted. And then perhaps it was the division between us and the Neanderthals. The Neanderthals stayed with sign language and we um, got the advantage of verbal language, which projected over greater distances. And that maybe gave us, no, I'm getting that mixed up with the Neanderthals. They, I think Str they have- Strother, why, why you mull that over? I have to go to the bathroom so bad. I, I'm starting to not be able to oh, think. Yeah. Can, okay. can you, uh, I'll be back in quicker than sure. I'd like to admit. I'll be right back. I'll be, I'll be back too. I'll use a, a bathroom break too. <laughs> ah, you're back. I'm back. So How did everything to, go? <laughs> uh, it, it went well. <laughs> I'd make a bad joke. I actually yeah, will. Yeah. Got my mind. Well, I couldn't stop myself. <laughs> the, uh, so just to finish out that thought, because um, I'm in, as with my literary background, I'm interested in the metaphors that all of this, whether the science is true or not, I don't know. I just love the metaphors, which is that when we make, we're actually speaking. We're saying something by what we make. And when we speak, we're actually making something and not just speech acts, but we're also we're creating when we we're creating dreams that can affect and. If, the, if we take the, the definition of language, that is, as um, a means of affecting a change in behavior in another person. Uh, and that, to, to me, that's a fascinating definition for the purpose of language, because we don't generally think of what we're doing with language, but we are trying to create a change, a change in understanding, a change in action. Stop, go, don't do this, do that. Um, and as a teacher, everything we do in a classroom is to affect a change in our students, but also in our relationships, too. Uh, and so what is making but changing? You're changing the raw materials in your hands. You're trying to create something new. Um, so that's what the book is about. It explores all of that. That's Try awesome. Yeah, that sounds incredible. I hope, it, I hope it is, but we have to get there. I have to... I, as, as uh, to quote Monty Python, all the words are there. It's just a matter of getting them in the right order. Yeah. Well, that is the task. Huh. That sounds awesome. I, uh, I'm painfully aware that I've kept you much longer than I've told you I would. Oh, that's quite all right. Um, so, and I know that there's a plate of food that has lost its steam probably <laughs> right off camera. <laughs> Uh, right so, so why don't we do this? Why don't we, why don't I, I'm going to reluctantly sign off. Sure. Um, and obviously thank, thank you so much for, for this. This has been awesome. Um, I'm really interested in, in speaking with Dave Crosby, but I, but I'd also like, I have all these things written down about what I would ask you, like India motorcycle trip, like all these like little things that sure. Josephine might've mentioned where I was like, you need to stop. Cause I have to ask him about these things. Um, hunting there you know even the woodworking thing i'd love to just go there so maybe if you send me dave's information or somehow um i'll send you that podcast too if we sure. go back and forth that way i'd be really interested to talk to dave and then circle back um and i promise sure, I'll, sure. I'll i won't keep yeah. you another two hours <laughs> and i i enjoy talking with you kevin a lot so um and you listen oh my god um uh so uh, yeah, 
if you want to talk further about any of those things, I'm very glad to just set up a time. I'll be there. I'll give you Dave's uh, information. I'll ask him. Uh, I'll, I'll contact him around, see if, see if he wants to talk to you. Uh, we were, um, and I'm sure he will, but I'll still uh, be the, uh, do the, the, the social, uh, the socially uh, um, polite thing and ask him first. Um, and I think, yeah, you'll get some, some deep insights. Uh, he's, he's had a fascinating life. Uh, doing in the Air Force, he was, uh, uh, I forget the name of um, his unit, but he was pulling, he was pulling um, uh, airmen out of crashed nuclear bombers uh, when they would come back to bases and, and doing that in the, in the, in the 80s in Germany. Uh, there's some amazing stories there. Terrifying. <laughs> Truly oh, I bet. I'd be really interested to hear somebody who's has that perspective, who's also really interested in the Judeo-Christian and Greek tradition, uh, like found foundations uh, yes. of our society. How those how those things meld, I'm sure, is interesting. Yep, yep. I'll find some. Uh, I'll look for some old emails, email exchanges, and um, I'll send them on to you because I think. Uh, He's, he's put it down into, into writing some of his, his deeper insights. But yeah, cool. he's absolutely worth talking to. Awesome. But yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, sorry to keep you from your bathroom break for that matter. No, that's great, all right. But thank, thank you for asking questions. It's, it's fun to talk through this stuff. And, uh, Beautiful. Well, I've, I have many, many more. So, and I, I get, get the sense that we probably won't exhaust these conversations anytime soon. So I'm looking forward to circling back. Absolutely, absolutely. Awesome. Thank, thank Thanks for thinking of me. No, of course. I'm excited to think about you again soon. Glad, glad to be, uh, glad to be helpful. And wonderful that you teach English. This is a great thing. I used Not to teach. Not well, as I've demonstrated. I'm sure. I'm, I miss it much. No, no, no. You're, you're well. <clears throat> you said, you said nothing that is not of use to a kid. Um, if you, uh, I don't know what you could say that would make me despair, uh, but. <laughs> Only good things. So I have a I have a strong feeling you're standing job teaching your kids. You'll you'll never get gratitude for it. You'll you'll never really see that. That that does that's not part of the equation. Yeah. You'll just get, why is my grade so low? Right. Um, that's all you'll ever get. But you are passing on, you are changing people with words. Huh. It's a good callback. You're, you're making you're making people with words. <laughs> that's it. It's a lot of weight. Oh, terrible responsibility. <laughs> well, Strada, go, go eat. Thank you so much. All the best. And uh, thanks, Kevin. Yep, sure. Bye-bye.